And we find that Jonah's best laid plans cannot stand up to God's way. The ship is about to break up. And then last week we looked at a couple of verses along these, this same thought. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many. It makes sense. And, and horsemen because they are very strong. This is a great plan. It makes sense. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. What are we depending on? What are you depending on apart from the Lord? Jesus tells us this in regards to that. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, did you know the Bible actually tells us what we can do? You can do nothing. I don't know about you, but I know I think a whole lot more of myself than I should. A few weeks ago, I walked into the bathroom and the the shower was leaking. Just a little drip. Just a little drip. Instead of being patient and waiting for Herb, my friend, to come and fix it, I figured it's just a little drip. I'll take care of it myself. A very long story made short. I had messed it up so much that by the time Herb got there and looked it over, he says, okay, Kelly, this is what's going on. There's some old plumbing mixed with some new plumbing, and the new plumbing is old plumbing. There are no parts for it anymore. If I can't fix this, we're going to have to replumb the whole house. (laughs) (laughs) I had no business messing with what I did not understand. What are you trusting yourself with in life that you have no business doing because you're not qualified. You're not great. And in the light of this, we see the response of the sailors to the greatness of God being shown. We see the response of Jonah. And the contrast is staggering. First of all, the response of the sailors to the revelation of God's greatness. Well, it says in verse 5, they became afraid. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. This is something that you and I looked at a a few months ago. And so I just want to go over some things that we talked about then. Jesus is talking uh, to, he's, he's referring to the Religious leadership, he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he's talking about this hypocrisy of the religious leadership. And with that in mind, that being the context, in verse 4 he says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Verse 5, But I will warn you whom to fear. The one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We talked, we looked at this passage and we talked about how, you know, it's, so, it's, it's natural for us to want to water down what it means to fear God. But then we look at the word itself and find that the very definition of the word means to be afraid. We don't have a problem accepting that 
understanding when we read Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration when the disciples come up with a great idea of what needs to be done at this moment and God speaks. And when God speaks, we read this, when the disciples heard this, they fell face downward and were extremely afraid. And we don't try to water it down there. I say, we have no problem. They were being idiots. You know, we can identify with that. They're being afraid. I, I told you back then that I have fear of my table saw. Now, because of my fear of my table saw, the result of that has not been hiding the saw or getting rid of it. I have great fear of my table saw, and that fear has derived in much benefit and productivity. Misplaced fear is found in verse, you know, is not to fear these men. It's what he's talking about. The hypocrisy of them. Don't be afraid. Uh, Proverbs 29.5 says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Right-placed fear, we find here, is to be in God. Who we find in Scripture to be Abraham's provider. In Genesis 22, when he is about to sacrifice his son because God told him to, he stops him, and, he, and we read this in verse 12 of Genesis 22. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you, what? Fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham called the name of that place, catch this, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day in the mount, the Lord will provide. The fear of God has brought about for Abraham God's provision. We also find the fear of God to be the source of knowledge and wisdom and discipline. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, we read this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, some of you might think I'm making too much out of this illustration. But I really don't think I am. I was in a place one time with a group of people, and a young man was asked to lead us in prayer. And he started the prayer like this. Hey, Jesus! Maybe you think I'm making too much out of it, but that's not how the Lord himself taught us to pray. But how? <coughs> Our Father, hallowed be your name. Do we fear the Lord? I think it's interesting as we go back to our text to see who fears God and who doesn't. In verse 5, every man cried to his God. They are aware of what God was doing, though they didn't know it was God that was doing it. And they know that it's beyond them. Also, there in verse 5, they threw the cargo into the sea. They recognized the necessity for sacrifice. 
And then in verse 6, so that we will not perish, the captain says. They want to live. This is the response of the sailors to the greatness of God being revealed. They are, they are aware of this, what God is doing, being beyond them. They recognize the need for sacrifice. And they want to live. Now remember those three things, because we're going to see the antithesis of it in just a second. As we look at Jonah's response. They are aware of what God is doing, and that it's beyond them. They recognize the need for sacrifice, and they want to live. So what is the response then? of Jonah to the revelation of the greatness of God. In verse 5, second half, But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. He has fallen sound asleep. He's not aware of what God is doing. He has no clue of what God's doing. He's asleep. When Paul and I were little boys... We experienced our first hurricane in Louisiana. It hit our town. You know, you look at all the little towns along the coastline, you figure, what's the chances? It hit us. I slept through the whole thing. I woke up, walked out into the living room, and every, you know, the whole family is up, looks tired. They've been up all night. I look around. They've got furniture on top of things. And I just stand there and look at them and say, what's going on? And they go, are you kidding me? <laughs> Paul looks at me like I'm an idiot. That was basically Paul's regular expression. <laughs> just... doing it right now? Yeah, he is. <laughs> and they look at me and said, are you kidding me? The hurricane hit us last night. I slept through the whole thing two feet away from a window. I had no idea. Jonah has no idea that God has shown his greatness. He's asleep. He, has, he sees no need for sacrifice. And as far as it comes to dealing with Nineveh, he could care less if he lives or not. Why would I say that? We'll look over in chapter 4. In verse 3, we know in chapter 2 he wants to live. <laughs> and I think it's got a lot to do because it's all about him. See, I told you, I don't think Jonah, the book of Jonah is about Jonah. But in chapter 4, we see this in, um, in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And then over in verse 8 and 9, when the, uh, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. And God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plan? He said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. It, 
This is, this is a sobering picture for us. He could care less about living. There is no need for sacrifice, and he's not even aware that God is active. This, this phrase, fallen sound asleep, is actually one word in Hebrew. And it basically means this, deep or dead sleep. He is out. And there's, you know, there's different thoughts on what that means. There's one fellow I found, he said it like this, throughout this violent storm, Jonah was asleep in the hold of the ship. The word used here implies a deep, even supernatural sleep, such as Adam experienced when God took the rib from his side. Apparently, the spiritual stress of his disobedience to God and the hasty trip to Joppa uh, had drained all the energy from the prophet, and he was exhausted. Well, you know, some of that, I'm okay, I, I can see some of that, but some of it, I'm like, I don't know. But regardless, regardless of the reason for his sleep, we see that his disobedience to and his lack of regard for the Lord has progressed to the point that he has no regard for those around him. He doesn't care at all about the Ninevites. And he doesn't care about the sailors. This should not be true of the one who walks with God. When we're not aware of the Lord's work in our life, we become all about ourselves and we have no regard for anyone else. And that is not true of the life of God. That's not true of His image. It's not true of His life in the believer. We go throughout Scripture. We look, look, at, look at, the, the, at Israel, of which Jonah is a part of. Look at this. This is their beginning. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Deuteronomy uh, 31, 12 and 13, God says, Assemble the people. He wants them to know this. Assemble the people, the men and the women, and the children and the alien who is in your town, so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God. And be careful to observe all the words of this law. Their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. As long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. This is true of God throughout Scripture, isn't it? In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life, and therefore should be true of you and me. Ephesians 4, 1-3, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, employ you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In our very marriages, husbands, Ephesians 5, love your wives just as Christ loved. 
the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, 1 Peter 3, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Lord, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And then in our book, Jonah, in chapter 4, verses 10 to 11. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? as well as many animals. This life that we live is not about us. It is not about us. It's all about Him. Therefore, His life in us will be all about others. When I was a Bible school student at His Hill, so that was a long time ago, the person I went to when I needed advice was one of my teachers. But it was not, he was not the best teacher. He was not the one that I got excited about going into the classroom, into the chapel, and listening to. Most of us that year felt the same way. It was hard to get through the classes. But when I needed to hear from someone, when I needed to be given godly advice, he's the one I ran to. And most of us did. Even to this day, he's one of the people I want to hear from. Because of how he lived. Because of how he lived toward us. He said so much more outside of the classroom than he did in the classroom. Because of his care, his concern, his pursuit, his movement toward us. I really pray that we as a, as a church are not, are not together because, solely because of what we hear taught, what we hear preached. And then we're just satisfied with that. But that what we hear, the truth impact us in such a way that we live different from our neighbor. That we live in such a way that our neighbor sees Jesus, hears Jesus, feels Jesus. My son-in-law, Tylan, was up in Canada last week visiting his family, first time he could see them in four years. Another story we'll talk about maybe another time. 
on his way back, he was on a two-hour flight sitting next to a stranger, and they got into a conversation. His man sitting next to him was a very wealthy man who has been involved in a lot of really big financial deals knows a lot about how to run a business. And they got in, into a conversation, and the man found out what Thailand does, that we as a family have a business and what we're doing with the business. And this man started giving him all this advice and then telling him, no, don't do that. Something that we are going to do because the Lord's laid it before us to do. He says, no, don't do that. Do this. And he goes on to t- explain these things to Thailand about how successful he's been and what he's doing, and, uh, the, the, but the cost that it's come to his, his son, his, his family, and, and uh, keeps going on about what he's done and what he's done. And Thailand says, you know, he explained to him that what we want to do with our business is, is to minister the life of Christ. And this is really what is driving us. And then he's told him, you know, the, the word says, the Bible says, that what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? It forfeits his soul. And then he said, you know, sir, I think this describes you. And I said, you told him that? <laughs> and Tyler looks at me and goes, yeah. And the man looks at him and he says, you may be right. A few years ago, one of my daughters said, Dad, I think, she said, I am so disturbed. We, uh, social media is a big thing for our business. Okay? It's, it, if it wasn't for social media, I don't know that, what our business would be like. And so she's in charge of it, and she says, Dad, I'm so tired of looking at all the people posting and all the Christians posting rainbows and blacked out screens. We need to be, I really believe we need to be very clear about who we are as a business. And we all looked at her and said, yeah. And so that has progressed into, and I'll tell you this, if you make that decision, John chapter 15 becomes a big deal. And I'm not talking about you abide in me and I in you and you'll produce much fruit. I'm talking about the section that says what the result of that will be. They will hate you because they hate me. No servant is greater than his master. And it, but it's been so encouraging at the same time to see how many people have responded to this. How many times Arlene gets a phone call because she's the one that carries the business phone around and she ends up praying with customers. And then sometimes the customer calls us and says, is there anything I can pray for you about? They write, they write notes to us and just say things like, thank you so much for just writing scripture at the bottom of my invoice. Thank you so much for the scripture that's on the boxes that we receive. Now listen, I'm telling you this, not like, hey, look what we've done. My children have been incredible, big challenges to me because naturally it would be, it just comes to me that just, let's just be quiet about this and let's just make the makeup and give it to people. Let's just sell it to them make a living. <laughs> we'll pray for them, but let's don't tell them we're praying for them. <laughs> but that's not true of the life of Christ in us. 
one of them, are, are we just, are we aware of the greatness of God? Well, one way of, of answering this question is, what's going on in my life? How am I seen or not seen? Some of you know that we just got back, uh, as a business, we just got back from California uh, from uh, sponsoring uh, a, a pro-life event in, in Santa Monica on the pier. And this company just rolled, I'm not company, this, this ministry just rolled out the red carpet for us like we were something big or something. I mean, we kept looking at each other like they're treating us like, you know, like, like we're some big, well-known company. And they're just gushing over us that we would be here. And we're thinking, what is going on? They gave Arlene and me a spot to speak, to go up on the stage and speak to the crowd. What in the world? You know, so, Okay. And then we found out what was going on. We're the only business in the country that would sponsor them. Where are the Christian companies? I think we're asleep. As a nation, we think that if we vote right, Everything will be fixed. And so now we're all in despair, aren't we? Think about it. In the past, we have voted right, and where did that put us? Our political situation is not our problem. It's just a symptom of the problem. This country needs Jesus. You know what's really sad is this country has Jesus. But we keep him hidden. We keep him hidden at the grocery store in line. We keep him hidden in the dri- while we're driving down the road and someone cuts us off. We keep him hidden when we go to work. Because we're asleep. Has your life become all about you? Leaving you spiritually asleep and physically numb or maybe even sick. Living a life of selfishness all about your will and not the Lord's will. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, there's a verse that we could have a whole series of lessons on. As we think about the context of what's going on here, the year of King Uzziah's death. Does anybody know how King Uzziah died? Besides Charlie? He was a good king. Yeah. He was a good king till his heart became proud. And then he became a stinker. And he thought he was all that. He went into the temple as king to serve as a priest. 
The priests run in. They say, what are you doing? You can't do this. You're not qualified. He said, yes, I am. And at that moment, he broke out with leprosy. They rushed him out of the temple, completely out of the temple, because now he's, uh, he's unclean. He couldn't go back to his palace. Instead, he had to go live in a, a, another building until his body was done rotting away. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Isn't that incredible what's going on here? I see God, and He's in charge. Lofty, exalted, with the train of His robe, filling the temple, the very place that Uzziah just got kicked out of. The contrast is incredible. Have you been taken captive to the lie that you are something, your will is the best way, or to the truth of Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority? Well, I didn't mean for you not to say anything, but I'm done, so what do you have to say? I'm just thinking about what you mentioned about apart from the Lord, we can do nothing. And, like, to be clear, like, there are, there are times when the Lord allows the consequences to go through. But, like, Jonah accomplishes nothing. Like, he's, he's rebellious, and he doesn't even destroy anything, right? There, there are absolutely times where believers who are disobedient to what the Lord asks them to do, they cause a huge mess. But Jonah doesn't even do that. He wastes all the time. Like, nothing happens. It, hmm. It's not that he reverses anything. It's not that he spoils this. It's just that, like, it's... He, he basically spends however much time just kind of like floating around and then it's still, everything is accomplished. He doesn't accomplish good and he doesn't accomplish evil. He accomplishes nothing at all. Like it's just, it's, I think it was uh, Matt Cole when he was a teacher talked about, you know, who of you on your gravestone would like to have, you know, your name when you lived and died and then wasted oxygen, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, what did you accomplish? Wasted yeah. And that is that is doing this here, like apart from the Lord. There is there's nothing that goes on here. Which again, like it's not about Jonah. It is about what the Lord is doing. As as Jonah rebels when he's being told to go to these people who are rebelling. And the Lord is faithful during this. And he even in this, in this in this specific circumstance, the Lord does not permit the rebellion to bring about evil. And I think that goes back to, like you, you pointed out, that the word is great and great. And I go, okay, it's great. Because we have a culture that exaggerates everything immediately. Everything is miraculous, amazing, and great. Awesome. The dead coming back to life is that, and when the burger arrives on time. Like yeah. Both of those are mm. miraculous. Mm. And we were listening to something a couple weeks ago talking about just like as writing. When, you, when, you, when everything is immediately terrifying, gas prices are terrifying. You have nowhere to go from there, and you lose the, the, the significance of the meaning. And I think that's incredible, like the, the significance of great being so often tied to the Lord, that it's not like, well, the Assyrians are great. Like, no, there's a bunch of them, and they have things, but they're not great. Yeah. And as a, as a contrast to that, like when we talk about voting, it's so often that we treat voting as like, I'm going to purchase good. I'm going to do this, and now I deserve to have good returned to me because this is the vote that I'm casting. And we don't treat it as like, Lord, 
I am following what your guidance is here, but you will accomplish your will in this. And if it goes different than I checkbox, then I need to praise you for that. Because as you have done good here with this moron, I pray that you use this moron as well. Because I have no idea. I, don't, I do not know what I need. I get grumpy because I have to turn the car around this morning because I, did I turn the oven off or not? And I've wasted two minutes. That's like my indignation. But that's like, and these are the circumstances when I, when I read about he's so grumpy about this worm. And I'm like, oh, that's, I wish I couldn't say that. But I do, and I need him so much for, for, for showing the grace that I, that I wish I would. But like, praise God that he is, he is so faithful. Hmm. Thank you. Okay, is that it? All right, then. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patience with us and your pursuit of us. We thank you for the privilege that it is to belong to you who alone is sovereign. We ask for your wisdom to abide in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you be glorified. We can th and we thank you that we can ask such a thing because this is what you would have. And so we do pray to be sensitive, to be conscious of what you're doing in our lives, for your wisdom to abide there with you. In Jesus' name, amen.